started in hard times to bring us all in into the Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier weekly infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power, power department's perspective. I'm the voice of the underground and economic development manager for Klatskin IPUD, Brian Fawcett. I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground and the manager of the power department for Klatskin IPUD, Paul Dockery. I'm Erin Guillory, the star of Erin Reports, co-star of Public Power Underground and Klatskin I People's Utility District's controller. Today, we are also joined by a new collaborator from News Data, the associate editor for Clearing Up, a blue check mark on Energy Twitter, and our podcast ambassador, Dan Ketchpool. Welcome to the team, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, so I'm Dan Catchpole. I'm a reporter with Clearing Up. Uh, News Data is Clearing Up. And I really wish I'd thought of a more clever banter intro than that. You do realize that we we read you in. All the read-in had you as a reporter for Clearing Up. And then you repeated it. I feel like the podcast ambassador, like we got to get you up to speed. Sorry. This is the podcast framework we're working on, Dan. I, we're gonna, so maybe this is a two-way ambassador. We really like to script people in and then immediately descript them. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's okay, my go. time here, folks. Thanks for having me. The good news is I've you're... already been cut. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't I, think we're at two years yet. I don't think we're at two years yet. I think where this is like one, isn't this one? I think we are near the one year anniversary, actually. It was around the October timeframe that we started doing this, right? I, I believe so. I think so. And somehow yeah. we uh, fit in three seasons in one I year, love, right? I mean, that's, that's, I love how loose I am on seasons. It's like any, any prestige drama, they have very loose guidelines on what a season is. It can be 12 episodes. It can be eight episodes. We're like the prestige uh podcast of northwest public power right we are. like maybe we're news data's <laughs> prestige podcast what do you feel how do you feel about that dan do you feel attacked by that the prestige um i no I'll, I'll go along to get along get along to go along i can never remember okay. which one it is i'm just here for the ride and we'll just take it one day at a time and god willing we'll win a few okay is it yeah, all deep, Durham reference for anybody who's following along at home. Okay. We'll get some deep Bull Durham references out of you. That in, in, the, in all things, that is already a great <laughs> addition to our podcast. Yep. Thank you. I like it. Yep. All right. As mentioned, this is season three, episode seven, uh, Market Week. It's the third season, a season of sustainable new normals, and we're excited to include news data collaborators as a part of our sustainability and the new normal for Public Power Underground. We expect it. It'll be a lot more sustainable for Klatskin IPUD and a little less normal for news data. On today's show, we're getting an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports. Paul talks to Therese Hampton and Steve Kearns from the Public Generating Pool about their market retrospective. We dig a little deeper into gas markets with TEA's gas giants, Christopher Lewis and John Rayford. We cover more public power and public power adjacent news and public power desktop. And lastly, we're trying out a new segment we're calling Short to Ground, where we, we read through some headlines we didn't get to on public power desktop. We're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Air Reports. Great. Sounds good. This is Aaron Reports, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest Market Indicators for October 25th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. 
October through September flows at the Dallas for Water Year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 90% of normal, and April to September is at 95. Outflow at the Dallas peaked over the past week at 120.5 kcfs on October 19th at 2100 hours. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday, October 24th, was 1,284, and peak outflow this past week happened October 21st at 8 a.m. when it reached 122.1 kcfs. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery October 25th is at $51.50. Fifty cents with gas at four dollars ninety eight cents per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of sixteen dollars and sixty four cents and a heat rate of ten thousand three hundred. In term markets, balance of the month for Mitzi is now at fifty eight dollars ninety five cents per megawatt hour. Mitzi power for December twenty twenty one is at eighty four dollars and forty cents, down from ninety dollars and ninety five cents a week ago. December gas at Sumas is trading at seven dollars and fourteen cents, translating to a heat rate of eleven thousand eight hundred. Taking a look at fish counts at Lower Granite Dam, 249 steelheads passed through yesterday. Spending a beat at Bonneville's Balancing Authority, peak load this past week was 7,056 on October 19th at 7.35 a.m. During load's peak, hydro generation was at 7,856, wind gen was at 21, conventional units were at 1,203, and nuclear was at 1,163. All units in megawatts. Enzo for the July-August-September period sits at a negative 0.5 Oceanic Nino Index. The multivariate Enzo Index for August-September is negative 1.41. And the SST Consolidated Nino Forecast indicates that we're likely to remain in a La Nina through spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecasts, the 6 to 10 day outlook has temp above normal for the region, precipitation is expected to be below normal in the southern part of the region, and slightly below normal in the north. Their three-day, their 30-day and 90-day report indicates uh, temperatures in the normal range and a chance of above-average precipitation. Special thanks to Answer G for letting us use their dashboards for errand reports, and to Luigi for collecting and compiling the data. That's all we've got for this update. All right. Next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Take it away, Dan. All right. Thank you, Brian. With December natural gas prices bouncing around $7 per MMBTU, uh, the underground decided to ask some experts to help dig deeper into the macro drivers that have pushed prices up from $4 uh, about a year ago and even low $2 before that. So joining us to talk about the market movers are experts from the Energy Authority, TEA. Chris Lewis is TEA's portfolio manager and John Rayford is their director of natural gas trading. So together, we're calling them the Gas Giants. Hey, John, welcome to Public Power Underground. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. Appreciate oh, to be part of the conversation. Good to have you. Chris, welcome. Welcome, hey. welcome. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for enjoy, uh, inviting us. Well, you know, I, I've been struggling with natural gas pricing. I reached out to my, my friends, too, my friend, too, at TEA, who's my market, special market correspondent, market and metaverse. And he was like, oh, I know smarter people about natural gas, specialized people. And you, too, you two were the ones. You two were the ones he recommended. It's, a, it's an honor that you got nominated by a friend of the underground. It for, sure is. For yeah. sure. For sure. Uh, you guys have the right, like, hesitance, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Right? Hesitance. Sure, it's great. Great to be here. So, uh, you know, natural gas markets I feel pretty crazy right now, at least in the Northwest, which is where I, I experience them. So there's, Europe has this crisis going on. We see a lot of 
cost pressures in North America, at least what on the macro level, even Henry Hub is elevated. And then Sumas Gas, which is our Northwest trading hub, is tra in the $7 range uh, for December. And I, I, I'm going to start with you, John. You're like, what is going on? Help me. Help me understand this. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I almost bring it all back really to the start of the pandemic almost, right? Like, I think you can probably draw uh, a line trace to where we are today almost to to that point. And it just so many factors, so many more factors came into play for natural gas markets post pandemic, post March, 2020. Um, yeah. And, you know, and we, I think, and I want to get into, I do want to draw the line, but I don't want to, I want to draw Chris in too and get, get him in here too, because I, I think this is going to be a fun conversation from that pandemic point, how much, because Europe's energy crisis, they do tie that to the storage drawdowns uh, in Europe as part of uh, a cold winter and then a pandemic impacting production maybe. H how much is Europe's crisis impacting North America crises and and how much of Europe's crisis is pandemic related? It, it's crazy. We've always considered our market a domestic market and that's US, Canada, and Mexico. We really haven't worried about what's going on in the rest of the world, but now today we're getting almost a flashback to 2008 where we do care. So, um, and it's to John's point, it started what started on one extreme last year with the pandemic, with everything being shut in. Now we're, you know, the rubber band is snapping back the other direction as we're kind of seeing the fallout from uh, last year. Yeah, so demand, uh, demand is coming back for this product. So John, kind of where is that through line from the start of the pandemic of of was it was it just some some speculation about what would happen that ended up causing other things to happen? What can draw that through line for me? Yeah, so I mean we've had increasing natural gas generation for power, right, becoming a, a larger part of our portfolio mix domestically for a long time. That that trend wasn't new. The you know, pandemic in 2020, when we just had, you know, commodities collapse across the board, but definitely gas and oil, and you, you see all the production. It also sped up a lot of coal retirements, yep. um, yeah. in which kind of now put more gas higher in the stack during that period. So, which was great at $1.50 gas. And so, hey, this makes more and more sense. It just kind of fed into itself um, on that. It, it helped that transition. And now today we still have all this demand, but you have less elastic demand resources, right? We have less thermal within the generation stack and natural gas is increasingly picking up that load. And like Chris alluded to, now we've got international markets to think about as well. And you just have more mouths at the trough, so to speak. And um, that demand side is stickier than it was maybe five years ago. And now the producer side, going back to kind of March 2020, right? They had a rough year, need to shore up balance sheets here in 2021. Production is up year over year, but it's down to where we were in 2019. We, you know, we're forecasting a market of production levels of 94, 95 BCF a day in 2019. We haven't got back there. And you're seeing a lot of producer capital discipline on deploying new production. And so what we've enjoyed the prior 10 years of gas markets was this really quick producer response that isn't there. And so that's that rubber band that kind of seems to be snapping back a little bit on really both sides of the equation uh, on the supply and the demand side, and then add in global economics as well and an energy transition. And here we go. You got $7 gas in the Pacific Northwest um, and around the country, you know, for winter. 
And, and one thing there, I think you, you hit on a lot of these elements, but you called the the demand side stickier. So for those that, I mean, I think I kind of get what that means, but what does that mean? Is it because there's more generation using natural gas, you have a more a, a, a more stable demand side of that equation? Is that what you mean by stickier? I mean more, you have less to switch to now. There's less optionality on the demand okay. side. So there used to be a lot more sensitivity you know, if gas prices got to about 350 in that range, you would ramp up maybe some older coal generation that was still hanging okay. around. That's gone now, and gas is continuing to fill in the gaps to renewable resources, but now just also baseload, and there's not much else to switch to. So, um, you know, as except loads, oil. Yeah, except oil is going to be the next the switching next. point. And that's part of, as you mentioned, the, the fear that's kind of taken over in the market right now. The fear is okay. We've switched as much coal as we to as much coal as we can. What's next? Okay. Next is oil switching. That's a double-digit gas price. Um, you know, we see it every year up in the Northeast. But you know, once you start seeing how everything is tied together with over overseas in the LN, uh, LNG markets to now having to be worried about maybe switching to oil even here in the states. That's just what has ramped up the volatility that was flatlined for, for the last three years um, and to help contribute to the, the sizable gains that we've seen this summer. So it, it, you've mentioned it a couple of times, this like tie to the European markets. In my head, like LNG exports were never, weren't big enough to drive a U.S. market for, for an export. When did that change? When did we get enough LNG exports? And is it a real fundamental or is it largely a fear? Uh, no, it, it, it's a fundamental. Uh, there's roughly about 12 BCF a day of export capability. And we've been pinned right in that 10 to 11 BCF a day range. Um, we saw a little bit of a pullback here in the fall as um, all the facilities do their seasonal maintenance, but they're starting to ramp back up. There's a couple new trains that are getting ready to come online uh, by the end of the year. So that's going to kind of continue to march higher. And with spreads, the price spreads that we're seeing overseas, you know, we're talking $30 plus uh, markets over in Europe. It's not easy or it's pretty easy to see that, yeah, we're going to export as much as we can, um, you know, the, the, uh, to fill that need overseas. Um, and, and back to some of the domestic uh, macro pushes. So I, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about even at $80 uh, a gallon for a, a barrel of oil, you, you aren't seeing a lot of up, uh, picking up of production um, in these uh, shale oil fields. And, and as I recall, correct me, you all are the gas giants here. Um, it, a lot of that low gas prices we saw in the 20, the, the late teens was because of the shale oil. Um, it was natural gas was a byproduct and there ended up being a lot of a flush of gas. So is this uh, this slowing of production on those type of well, one of the macro uh, elements driving U.S. Uh, localized uh, natural gas prices? John, do you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one, Chris. Um, short answer is yes, Paul. Um, you know, on the producer side, after a really tough 2020, um, you know, we're just not seeing that response, you know, particularly in two major reasons, regions. You have the Marcellus, which is, um, you know, a dry natural gas area in Pennsylvania, Ohio, okay. West Virginia, in that area. Um, you haven't seen the 
natural gas response there. Um, and that's kind of limited to, again, that's energy transition and there's less takeaway capacity. So less pipelines out of that area. So you've got a big field, but you don't have the highways to get out or the, the on-ramps and off-ramps to get out of that region to incentivize that production. Okay. And then on the oil side, you know, we were for the past, you know, really three, four or five years, kind of, you'll hear the Permian shales, which is kind of West Texas, Oklahoma, your traditional oil fields. Um, that's where a lot of that associated natural gas byproduct that you were alluding to, Paul, comes out of. And, um, you know, there, that's where a lot of the big majors play in that area, okay. obviously on the oil side, but they're not investing, you know, right now into new rigs. And that's part of the kind of overall energy transition. And so the only response we're seeing right now from those majors, you know, your BPs, your shells, et cetera, um, is really doing, uh, implementing their duck wells, which are drilled but uncompleted. So what's their low hanging fruit that won't cost much to get online, but they're not deploying new rigs that they would expect to have a 15 to 20 year payback period. Um, they're just not deploying those right now. They're, they're holding to that capital discipline that we're seeing. And so that's the stickiness now we're seeing on the production side. And so, you know, I, I look back to, to planning, you know, again, 94, 95 BCF a day was where we were going to be two years ago to fill up all that takeaway LNG capacity Chris looked at. Um, and we're only at 90, 91 BCF a day. We're just not getting that little bit of incremental and that's the tightness on the balance we're seeing. So sorry, long answer. No, it's great. <laughs> but it seems to, it, it seems like this, uh, this not, not investing in those, I, I, I forget what you called them, those new, um, new oil drill wells. Rigs, I don't know. Yep. Rigs there. There we go. Um, instead of, because we aren't investing in those, is that what's giving pressure to the back end of the natural gas curve? Because the pandemic and that narrative seems to make sense in this near term and this start, this the $7 gas at Sumas for December, but the back end has also crept up. And is that, is there some fundamentals there where we think that's going to stay high because we aren't investing in these, uh, and I lost it again, oil rigs and the new rigs. There, I, I got it back. There you go. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? You know, I think part of it might be more of the shorter term. And when we were talking about we're looking out to 2030. Does our immediate drilling impact prices in 2030? Probably not so much, but maybe for 2022 and 2023, okay. you know, things will be a little bit slower to, to come online. But you know, the back end, as, as you mentioned, has seen a tremendous uh, rally this year as well. And I think part of that might be the, the energy transition story. Okay. Um, you know, there has been a tremendous amount of renewable growth and, and renewable demand um, when you stop and think of all the different states, you know, with new RPS targets that are constantly coming out, you have big corporate ESG initiatives that is really looking to drive, you know, to become greener as well. So it might be one of those where we're seeing what's happening today. We see this future demand, you know, for, for renewables and gas is that kind of that, that transition story. If we start to see more coal requirements, in the late 20s, well, how do we get to balance everything? We might need more gas. So, you know, the, there's definitely some demand that's, uh, you know, people looking to retire some coal might be stepping in and buying some longer dated gas. Um, you know, and kind of go along with that statement, um, just through conversations that we've had with other market ent entities, you know, we're seeing more end user industrial hedging coming into the market right now. 
you know, there's been really no need to hedge uh, from their standpoint because gas has been weak. Every time we got up near three dollars, prices would the producers would step in and they it would fall right back down. But now there's that little bit of the fear from the industrial side, and and they're stepping in and buying you know multi-year hedges right now, things that they may not have done for the last five years. So you know, I think it's uh, several different factors at play. That could be, you know, looking at that longer dated ship. So uh, this has been a great conversation. I do want to like give what I've processed and then you can correct me because we got a couple more minutes maybe <laughs> if you if I have a correction. So near term, it sounds like the near term is a pandemic story about um, kind of the near term production constraints and near term pandemic restraints. So that kind of a lot of ne- the pandemic story, the long term. Am I hearing you right, Chris, that some of that is just energy transition and you call the ESG. What's ESG stand for? That's the environmental, social, and governance that okay. has really taken hold. Um, it's it, it kind of like uh, with you know the, the global crisis right now. You, you open up any website, you're going to see the or go in any quarterly uh, report, and you're seeing now a lot more mentions to ESG initiatives um, by companies, and that's just one component. You know, it's that whole transition story um, that is kind of gaining hold um, over the, the past year or so. So what do you think of my simple soundbite there, John? Is that kind of, that simplify it too much? I mean, these are complex topics. I, no, I, I think you got it there, Paul. The, the pandemic, you know, kind of shook up the fundamentals, both on the production and demand side here in the short term. And then it sped up some of the factors we're seeing with an energy transition and, um, you know, I think the the bottom line, and you know, is as we look ahead, whether it's you know here in the short term or long term, there's just a lot more implied volatility in commodities markets right now. Um, and I think you know, if you had to kind of boil it down to one sort of sort of essence or statement, that's that's really kind of kind of where it is in in our view. And uh, uh, yeah, and it's kind of it's drive it's a bullish market at this point. I mean, it, uh, all these indicators are driving to to somewhat a bullish market for natural gas. That it is the fear premium that we're seeing right now as to what what could happen this winter. You know, we saw what happened last winter when we had that Arctic blast go all the way down into Texas. Now there's fears. You know, it's a, a it's a very tight market. What's going to happen, or what could happen if we get a, a repeat? Fascinating stuff. I really appreciate both of you coming on. What do you think of your your like honorary title? We've decided I can provide I can bestow honorary titles, even though we are we're we're part of we're you know coordinated collaborating with News Data now, a real news organization. The gas giants of the underground. How's that feel? You feel good about that? I'd wear it with the badge of honor. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Well, thank you both. Uh, we're gonna anything else you want to leave us with before we head back to the underground? I think we we covered it all. Okay, from the Energy Authority, we covered it all. That's the official word. I love it, Chris. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Now back to the underground for news. I mean, really great conversation with uh, the gas giants. Aaron, you're up next.
The global supply chain crunch isn't just a concern for holiday shopping. It's also a worry for the energy industry. The crunch in California is mainly affecting battery energy storage, according to Jason Fordney's excellent feature article in the October 15th issue of California Energy Markets. The supply chain for solar equipment is more diversified and established than that of batteries, which has resulted in less disruption amongst the solar industry. But there are still slowdowns. In the Pacific Northwest, utilities are also seeing lead times extend out for distribution level equipment like transformers and meters. The supply chain issues come at a time when California is ramping up its online battery capacity. In a September news release, Kaiso indicated its online battery storage had reached 1,500 megawatts, with another 1,500 expected by the end of 2021. You can find Jason's article as well as Kaiso's September news release in the show notes for more information. All right, Paul, you're next. A federal judge blocked a Montana law that state lawmakers passed in an effort to force four of six owners of Coal Strip's power plant to pay for maintenance to keep the plant running long after their planned exit in 2025. In an effort to overturn the law, the four, Puget Sound, Energy, Portland General Electric, Pacific Corps, and Avista, filed a federal lawsuit in May against the state of Montana and two owners who want to keep the plant running, Northwestern Energy and Talon Energy. The four owners are under state decarbonization mandates in Washington and Oregon, and they want out of the 1,480-megawatt coal-fired plant by 2025. They don't want to pay for work to keep the plant running past then. The law, House Bill 266, was passed earlier this year and allows the state to fine owners $1,000 a day if they aren't paying for long-term maintenance. That's up to $36.5 million a year. U.S. District Judge Susan Waters disarmed the state of Montana for now, and in her ruling, she said the four utilities make a really strong case that House Bill 266 is unconstitutional. If you want to learn more, head over to Clearing Up. The link is in the show notes. Read more of Dan's article and Dan's content. Well done, Dan. Thank you. Speaking of Dan, he's up next. Researchers figured they'd find fewer Chinook salmon in the waters where the Puget Sound southern resident orcas uh, like to hang out compared to the number of Chinook salmon in the nor- to where their northern neighbors go to dine. Uh, but... Researchers found the southern waters had four to six times more salmon than the sampling site farther north. Although we know Chinook populations are declining in the area, that southern resident killer whales, or orcas, are less healthy than uh, the northern residents, and the sample size of the study is small, the findings provide some evidence that factors other than salmon abundance, things such as pollution and ship traffic, might play a bigger role in orcas hunting success than previously thought. In any case, the study is sure to spur more scientific inquiry on the subject. Thanks to Ian Bledsoe for summarizing the news. If you want to learn more about the topic, check out my colleague Casey Mahaffey's article in this week's Clearing Up. Uh, links in the show notes, and if you or if you subscribe to Public Power Underground on Substack, which you should. Uh, also, it should be noted that the researchers also found four to six time more abundant uh, salmon at um, Red Lobster. Oh! <laughs> Where's the badumpching? Yeah, Where's the badumpching? I feel like a badumpching is my whole life. Since deregulation in the 1990s, the Northwest has taken several runs at forming an organized market of one sort or another. But every attempt has floundered. 
Now the transition from fossil fuel resources to intermittent renewable resources plus utilities experience with the Western EIM is prompting renewed interest in organized markets. The public generating pool released a report looking back at those failed attempts. The goal of the report, called Organized Market Retrospective, is to draw lessons from the past efforts and use them to better focus market con- uh, market conversations now. The report found three common themes that past market initiatives struggled with. Governance, transmission cost, allocate, transmission cost allocation, and the certainty of benefits relative to the costs. To learn more, we're joined by returning champion Therese Hampton, Executive Director of PGP and first-time guest on Public Power Underground, Steve Kearns, PGP's Senior Technical Advisor. Hey, Therese, welcome back to Public Power Underground. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. And congratulations on season three. Things are bigger and better than before. Very exciting, a third season. I think you've been on like two, like after dark episodes. (laughs) And well, I guess the one was more like a bonus premium episode and then an after dark. So this is like your first time on a just a, hey, this is going to be a normal episode, Therese. That's right. That's right. Be normal with us. Uh, and, and Steve, this is your first time. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Thank Steve. Thank you, Paul. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I, I think this will be a fun conversation. Yeah. I get to have it with two really smart people, which are my favorite conversations. And let's be honest, they're usually, I mean, we, we all get to talk to really smart people all the time. So this is great. Love this industry. Okay, we're going to dive right in. So y'all did uh, Organized Market Retrospective at PGP. Uh, which is this review of organized market efforts in the West. Um, it seems to be a retrospective. It is called a retrospective, so it's a, in some way a historical document. I'm still digesting it. I wanted to get your insights. And I think, Teresa, I'm going to frame it, start with you, around what do you think are the underrated aspects and underrated lessons we can learn as we take another step towards organized market evolution? I think there's a there's a couple of things, um, and and I think you did say lessons. So I I think the important thing is um, this is is this is hard. It's hard no matter where you're at, whether you're in the Northwest, whether you're in the Midwest, whether you're in the Southeast. Right? This is a challenging issue that people have struggled with all over the country, because it involves compromise, giving up control, and it creates uncertainty for your future. So that's kind of the underlying thing. What what we saw though in the uh, events that we looked at in the past is a couple of things. Um, each of the efforts took a minimum of at least three years. Three years people invested time in this and they had a lot of momentum and they had a lot of enthusiasm and certainty that they were all headed in the right direction. And then in the end, it can kind of uh, really fall apart when it comes to making the hard decisions and the hard commitments. And so three years is kind of a magic number to determine whether, you know, you're going to you're going to live or die. So I didn't pick that up when I was I was reading it. I was just seeing numbers and I didn't do the you know math. So you, this is like an underrated three years uh, seems to be a magic number. To So we're what, two years into the resource adequacy program. So next year is a big year. It is a big year. Yes, it is a big okay, year. Okay. To go from non-binding to binding will be really, really important. And to set up that governance structure, right? If you can get that governance structure set up, it's one of the core issues, right? Governance is one of the core right, issues. Right. right. So you said you had a couple. Uh, so the, what? So the three-year thing, really interesting. That is probably underrated. What's your other one? The other one is um, that it's, 
it is ultimately really important that there are benefits, um, that there are regionally defined benefits. The mandates, you know, FERC had tried different things with standard market design. We're seeing states try to uh, put things in place, but ultimately you have to be able to have solid benefits uh, for something to go forward. And uh, even after RTO West and Grid West, right, were unable to kind of come to fruition in what they had designed, what we did see come out of that was coordinated transmission planning because people realized the benefit of that. And so they, they continued with that. So find, finding some regional benefit, even in the incremental steps, I think I, I saw that as well coming through in the, in the document. Steve, did you have anything to add on, on, on this, you know, the, the insightful, interesting new tidbits you got from the retrospective? Well, well, to, to pick up on, on Teresa's point, I think the Western energy and balance market is another example of where regionally determined benefits got in front of policy mandates um, and allowed parties to see the benefit and to move forward uh, with absent that pressure from, from federal and state uh, regulators. I, I, I think one of the other things that, that, that I saw um, that really popped out when you looked at the whole spectrum of efforts that the Northwest um, um, underwent was the, 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 the need to really identify barriers um, up front uh, for market participation. Um, th this came up very early for Bonneville Power in Indigo, which was the very first effort in the mid-90s. And they had a legal determination that they couldn't join um, without legislative change that would require them to give up control of their transmission assets. And that was resolved to some extent in the 2005 Energy Policy Act. Um, but even as you went into RTO and Gridwest, there were concerns from Bonneville about governance and whatnot. Uh, and, and even in, in, the, in the record of de decision to join the energy imbalance market, Bonneville dedicated a lot of time to evaluating a number of really important things, like uh, respecting the rights of preference customers, um, ensuring that there is the obligation of making sales from the federal system, uh, FERC jurisdiction, the need to make sure that the, the FCRPS was able to meet its high priority non-power objectives. So getting in front of these very, very early on is going to be very important, not just for Bonneville, but other entities also will have barriers to, uh, to market participation as well. And to the extent that we can identify those early, we can design the market around them or to figure out other solutions to those problems. Yeah, and you did kind of pivot there because that was one of your right. recommenda recommended next steps. And I wanted to kind of get to kind of ask you, Steve, around next steps. So, similar to what I asked Therese about the historic retrospective, what for you are the kind of underrated elements of the next steps that can that can help? Well, what, uh, well one forward? of the things that we identified and uh, some of the intent here was to just get people thinking outside the box a little bit. And this is setting up your, okay. setting up your, setting like up your governance structure first. So, so, so typically you define what kind of market solution you want, you identify, then you identify what kind of governance structure you want. The idea here is to, is to really lay out your governance framework early to guide you in the decision-making process throughout what kind of market solution that you want. Getting that identified early, we think will, will solve a lot of problems and make sure that the parties that are participating in, in these efforts are really engaged and vested in a, in a, in a long-term solution. It also seems like that's a really difficult uh, proposition, though. I mean, if you're trying to get your governance set up first, that does require you have 
like funding for an independent board before you have anything else designed and you have to have commitment to fund and you know an independent board and staffing am i missing something there that seems like a really big lift to get just fund an organization before you actually know what the organization's gonna do yeah i think that's right i think that's the that's kind of the provocative part of that recommendation is uh because it kind of challenges the how much scope do you need to have defined before you turn it over, right, to yeah, an independent yeah. decision-making structure? And I think sometimes what we find, if we think about, you know, the, the three-year time frame, there's a point at which, right, it, there things have been defined enough, but people aren't willing to let go of everything that right. they had wanted. And so it's trying to find that balance, right, of I'm committed uh, with this rough frame and and then I recognize I'm not going to have control of everything for forever right I mean this is part of this is part of why this is all so challenging is because you are giving up individual control and you've got a certain level of uncertainty that comes along with that yeah that is underrated I don't think I picked it up during some of your other presentations this kind of flipping on its head of the the organization of the government structure. Therese, did you have something else uh, that you thought in the next steps like is underrated as not getting enough uh, of the pitch or the credit? What do you think? Um, well, I think the governance one is really the one that has kind of uh, piqued our interest and curiosity. I think the other one that um, is is not, uh, well, underrated. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but we really are encouraging uh, to think about what every party needs. Every party needs okay. to be supportive of the effort. You can't say, well, as long as public power is happy, well, as long as the investor owns are happy, well, as long as the stakeholders, it's gotta be the IPPs, the investor owns, the public power, and we have to think about all the associated uh, parties for them that need to be uh, happy. We need to think about shareholder risk. We need to think about state regulators. We need to think about kind of the politics of all of this. And, you know, part of our encouragement is that investor-owned utilities think about preference and, and are just as invested in us solving that um, as we should be in ensuring they get regulatory approval. And, and that gets back to, yeah. to your early point, Teresa, about the uh, need to compromise, right? I mean, these market solutions are going to be give and take. Uh, parties are not going to are going to have to go into this expecting that they're not going to win on every issue. They're not going to be able to maximize revenue and keep all their legacy transmission rights. There's going to have to be a, gig, a, a give and take throughout this whole process. And the uh, transmission cost shift is a great example of that, right? Um, work that was done in the mid-90s that looked at, at and, and estimated what the transmission cost shifts would be for moving from legacy uh, physical transmission contracts to uh, single tariff had winners and losers. And uh, trying to figure out the best way to mitigate those that were disadvantaged from that single tariff is going to be a really, really big challenge. And it's something we shouldn't try to solve on our own either, because other places around the country have gone through this also. And trying to find best practices that have already been established for, for managing some of these is going to be part of the equation as well. Yeah, uh, I do want to give a little bit of a pitch. One of the, 
I, it was a great summary, great report. There was this section in there about shared market function, benefit, and challenges. There was this table of what are the benefits, what are the challenges, who does it benefit? Right. I thought that was a great table, especially for people new to this conversation, like me, um, who were, you know, I was, I, I participated a little bit in the MC effort, but it, it was, this is a, you know, fun little new topic to dive in on. And that table helps so much ground myself in, you know, who, why is this, why is there friction? Because why does this topic cause friction? Right. So, uh, thank you very much. It's a great report. Um, I will put it in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to do one more hard hitting question okay. though, that you are not, I did not prep you for. Okay. <laughs> Which is, Which the, is the best named initiative? Is it Indigo or the MC? What's your favorite? It's not MC because that doesn't that doesn't tell you anything, right? What is MC? A master of ceremonies. Right. It's like this is a master of ceremonies for the the the. the it's, it feels like you put a nice suit on. You're an MC. You're trying to get everybody to come to. The, I thought it. I mean, I don't know that that's what it certainly was not what it was intended for. It's a great name, though. Unintentional. unintentional name. Indigo also a great name. So you're voting for Indigo, Teresa. What about you, I'm, Steve? I think rap is a great I, I, I name. We, we didn't have that in the paper, but, but, oh, but right. I really like that name. I think it's great. It kind of, you know, it implies closure to something. And we could put a rap on all of these efforts, right? You know, I mean, this could be it. A little rap. I did. Love it. That great conversation. I have so many more questions. I will either take them offline or maybe we can follow up again. But great having both of you. Thanks yep. for doing this. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Now back to the underground for more news. All right, Paul, you're up next. Okay. Our friends from Cowlitz PUD made the news last week. And if you all have time, you should check out the feature photo because it's awesome. Tree trimming crew shortages led Cowlitz PUD to use a one-man helicopter with a saw blade attached to trim trees instead of a climbing crew. As electric utility enthusiasts will know, trees close to electric poles can cause outages when they hit power lines. Using a helicopter proved to be time and cost effective as well as safer. They were able to save $288,000 and did it in two days, what the crew normally takes eight months to accomplish. Cowlitz PUD does not intend to replace its primary method of climbing crew, however. Cowlitz PUD Operations Superintendent Gary Pardue says he is open to exploring new technology and equipment to make the process of tree trimming trees easier. If you'd like to read the article by Haley Day, you can find it on the Energy, the Daily News website. We once again found the article thanks to the Energy News Digest. Of course, Joel Meyer is outstanding and his The Energy News Digest is where we get a lot of these uh, leads on great articles. Special thanks to Luigi for summarizing the piece. Well done, Luigi. I did make a couple edits, so the errors are mine. Just describe the errors to me. It's fine. This is incredibly intriguing to me that they did eight months worth of work in two days, and yet they're not planning on changing how they yeah. do do it moving forward yeah so i that's a very nuanced take because they only do this once every three years it is a remote line it is probably very uniquely applicable to this type of tree okay. trimming it is not you don't hang a saw from a helicopter everywhere in Cowlitz PUD's service territory. As someone who lives in Cowlitz PUD's service territory, I will say please don't hang a saw from a helicopter everywhere you trim trees in your service territory. Thank you very much. But it is incredibly, like, you do need to go check out the picture of this because it is exactly what you think it looks like. It is a saw hanging from a helicopter. I would be there curious too if like the- a big saw. Like big the saw. savings that they're quoting, if those are compared to inflated prices with a shortage. Like, did they get a quote for this work mm. right now? Oh, uh, 
Probably, right, Aaron? I mean, you would probably get compare the quote. And the prices are, I mean, workforce shortages are real uh, right now. Yeah, just saying 288000 That sounds crazy, but probably inflated. All right, Dan, you're up. All right, speaking of markets, more market talk. Kaiso hosted an October 13th webinar to restart their extended day ahead market, EDAM, effort amongst stakeholders, and SPP is scheduling informational sessions to talk about its Market Plus concept among stakeholders. Kaiso's EDAM initiative started two years ago, but hit, hit a pause due to several complications, including a deprioritization of the effort as Kaiso focused on summer readiness in the fall of 2020 and spring of 2021 after the blackouts, I'm sure we all remember, in August 2020. The workshop highlighted some new guiding design principles a working group of Western EIM entities developed. SPP's Market Plus concept is going through a soft rollout. Their plan is to get into a more formal stakeholder process early next year after doing some more intimate, targeted information gathering. Either process is public if you want to participate in Kaiso EDAM's workshops. Look for participation information on their calendar of events. If you're interested in SPP's Market Plus concept, you can email marketsplus, all written out, at spp.org. We expect the evolution of either and both markets to be the subject of future stories on the other underground and in clearing up in our sister publication, California Energy Markets. So if you know someone who's an expert, uh, we sh that the underground or news data should reach out to for context, send us a note and we'll send them an invite. Yeah, Aaron, why don't you tell us about the three most important things in a decarbonized uh, power grid? Oh, well, thank you. Well, the three most important things are transmission, transmission, transmission. Grid operator PJM Interconnection says it will cost $2.2 billion to $3.2 billion to build enough transmission to handle the offshore wind and renewable generation that the state... Um, that the states in its territory want to build by 2035. Despite the big price tag, PJM's report says that the transmission projects and renewable generation would lower customer costs. They won't be paying for more expensive fossil fuel resources or transmission bottlenecks, and there will be more exports to the mid-continent independent system operator MISO. The report projects the addition by 2035 of 45 gigawatts of solar, 14 gigawatts of onshore wind, 14 gigawatts of offshore wind, and seven, seven gigawatts of energy storage. FERC commissioners have noted the need for more transmission as the country's power grid moves away from fossil fuel resources and adds huge amounts of intermittent renewable resources. FERC is considering revising rules for transmission planning and construction to help that build out. Thanks to Dan Catchpole for summarizing the news. You can find a link to PJM's phase one study results on their website. Uh, really interesting. I'm glad, Dan, you, you highlighted this article for us this week. Um, I did want to do a couple things that I thought were incredibly interesting. The first is um, this is the upgrades necessary for the like within system, not the offshore components of the transmission. This is just within the PJM footprint. That, so after you've gotten the wind onto shore and have those onshore facilities in place, it's the transmission infrastructure for the rest of the system, um, which I think is an in important clarification. And then I just did some math for the 14 gigawatts of offshore wind, the 2.2 to $3.2 billion ends up being around $200 per kW. Um, which, you know, when you actually run through, that's, it's a reasonable 
I mean, it's it's still high for transmission costs related to generation projects, um, but if you put it in the dollar per kW of installed capacity, it's not mind blowing. Uh, whereas three point two billion dollars is, you know, that's a lot of money. That's what I found interesting. Dan, did you find anything else interesting, or do you well, have- I I mean, I just think it's uh, fascinating how radically everything is changing and how much we just. Like we're going with best guesses on a lot of this stuff, um, really informed projections and all that. But uh, you know, it reminded me that the analysis that uh, customers are going to pay less, even though there's this huge price tag, reminded me of the uh, projection from the Northwest Power and Conservation Council about how, as we build all this, you know, build out renewables, uh, we might actually see. Uh, but the loss of load probability, the chance of having to shed load actually decrease, even though we'd been projecting it to increase. Just there's so many, so many fundamentals are changing that our assumptions, like we can't really just go on how you think things are going to play out. Um, so, I mean, that was just yeah. The engineering, the, the engineering models, I think, can be incredibly helpful in an area where you you don't have the experience of how the system will work um, in a new in a new grid, in a new portfolio mix. The models can be really informative. They also do need to be tested, I think, by some just uh, experiential, like based on what you know about the system. Um, so it does take both. But uh, to your point about you can spend $3.2 billion for transmission infrastructure and it can end up being costing less. I do wonder, um, like one of the benefits of offshore wind is you end up getting higher capacity factors. They're going to have higher um, like capabilities for meeting peak loads or meeting peak needs. And, you know, that $200 per KW is informative for uh, if you can get that, that capacity value because yeah. the wind is offshore or not. Um, and that I think is a framework for how to think through why you could spend that much money and end up costing less than the alternative. Yeah, I mean, with all the energy storage and exports they're adding, I mean, that goes a long way to defraying those costs. Which also reminds me, we've got a lot of offshore wind potential off Oregon, and I'm not sure what the projections are for Washington, but I know Oregon has a lot. Um, So hopefully... yeah. Yeah. We had our friend uh, friend of the underground from Avangrid on a couple episodes oh, yeah. ago, Holly Carius, and she, she mentioned a little bit that the dynamics on the East Coast are a little bit different than the West Coast. The potential, because the sea floor is closer to yeah. the surface on the East Coast, it has a little bit lower capacity co- cost. But, you know, the West Coast, uh, it's it, it, part of the value of offshore wind is it's closer to load centers and some of the transmission you don't need to get across a bunch of people's you know land uh to get it to load centers you can just uh do subterranean cables it's it, it, maybe there are some dynamics there that even defray the cost of offshore on the west coast yeah okay so before we move on in an effort for uh, even more youtube vi- views dan can you uh tell us the name of your cat that walked through there oh yeah that <laughs> is pickles perfect pickles, pickles is a kitten um uh, Pickles has really big paws, so he is named after Pickles the Fire Cat. Uh, kids from a kids book back in like the fifties that I read. Uh, one of my favorite books as I was a child, not in the fifties. You were a child yeah. in the fifties. I know. I look amazing. Uh, you do. So I, I wondered if you were Superman. <laughs> if you were like Clark Kent, uh, but 
I don't know. You got the hair for Clark Kent, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, well, thank you. It is You're welcome. one of my greatest achievements. Uh, for all of our podcast listeners, if you are also a cat and kitten lover, you have to tune into YouTube. So with that, we will we'll move on. Uh, we're uh, we're going to be trying out a new segment this week to round up public power or po- public power adjacent news. We should shouldn't uh, we wouldn't otherwise get to on public power desktop. We're workshopping the name short to ground. So let us know how that feels. Shorting to ground this week is Paul. Take it away, Paul. This is Short to Ground, where we TLDR our way through some news leads. I'm Paul Dockery, and I'm shorting to ground this week. Uh, in Northwest Fish Topics, parties in a legal battle over the operation of federal dams in the Columbia Basin are proposing to put the litigation on hold for nine months, agreeing to a short-term operational plan for 2022, while they try to work out a long-term solution to the problem of diminishing salmon returns. This news came days before a new process to determine whether there are reasonable ways to replace the four lower snake dams was announced in a joint statement by Senator Pat Murray and Washington Governor Jay Inslee. And in more technical fish operations news, the annual balance between the reservoir elevation behind Grand Coulee Dam and ensuring the right amount of water is flowing in the Columbia River below Bonneville Dam for chum to spawn is expected to be challenging this year due to the drought. But members of the Columbia River Technical Management Team noted in their October 20th meeting that rain could come to rescue come to the rescue before the first week of November when spawning usually begins for Columbia River Chum, a a species listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. In supply and demand, natural gas generation's future could be brightening in California after a stressful summer on the Golden State's electric grid. State utility officials are considering upgrades to natural gas-fired power plants and potential deferral of some planned battery energy storage installations. However, further analysis is needed to determine the impact of potential gas capacity increases on air quality, particularly in disadvantaged communities, California PUC staff said. And the Oregon PUC on October 15th acknowledged a VISTA's 2021 Natural Gas Integrated Resource Plan, which does not anticipate a need for any significant capital investments in Oregon to meet demand in the next 20 years. We're a power department, so we know we, you know we love our supply and demand topics, so we're going to cover one more. Portland General Electric on October 15th took a major step toward meeting Oregon's clean energy standard by releasing a request for proposals seeking 1,000 megawatts of clean energy resources. The utility also announced plans to increase its access to distributed energy resources and expand its demand response, response program. Moving on to news about personalities in the region, some retirement news broke since broke through last week. Frank Afrangi, president of Northwest Power Pool, will retire on, in January 2022, the organization announced October 14th. And Scott Coe will retire as Emerald PUD's general manager on January 1st after nine years at the helm. Top stories out of California energy markets this week are that an Excel subsidiary serving southeastern New Mexico and West Texas plans to stick to a re- retirement and conversion schedule for two coal-fired power plants in its portfolio, despite the irreversible decline of an aquifer that provides water to 1,000-megawatt coal plant, as well as farms and communities in the region. The Northwest Public Regulatory Commission, at a meeting October 20th, approved Southwestern Public Service's 2021 Integrated Resource Plan, which calls for seasonal operation of the two-unit TOLC generating station in Texas and full retirement of the plant as scheduled in 2032. And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on October 21st approved Southern California Edison's wholesale distribution access tariff with a lower wires charge for standalone energy storage than the utility included in its original 2019 proposal. In regional 
Roundup, California's energy grid operator, launched a new effort to improve its interconnection process, driven by accelerated build-out of energy resources and the need to relieve a clogged interconnection queue. In news from the other Washington, Washington, D.C., that is, the Interior Department plans to sell seven offshore wind leases by 2025, including two of the West Coast. Two on the West Coast, Interior Secretary Deb Haaland said October 13th. And we'll end by clearing it up this week. State regulators want a stronger role and more oversight in the Northwest Public Power's nascent resource adequacy program, according to an October 12th letter to the North the Power Pool signed by representatives of regulatory commissions in every Western state except Montana and New Mexico. State officials are clear in the letter that they're not ceding their oversight role in public in the public interest. The program's regional footprint will bring FERC jurisdiction, and the states in that expanse, the officials say, should be able to file rate or tariff change proposals under Section 205 of the Federal Power Act. Special thanks to Ian for collecting and compiling the report and news data for the leads. That's as much current as we can carry this week. Back to you, Brian. Wow, that is a ton of information. Thank you for the run-through, Paul. Yeah, that was a lot. I don't know. Uh, send us any notes you have on that segment. See if we should change it, not include it. Was it too much, Dan? I felt I felt like a lot. We covered a lot. That yeah, I'm I'm not sure if you took a breath during that whole thing. That is all the news we're covering this week. Send us any news, questions, opinions, or corrections to Paul on Twitter at a power manager, or if you're a friend of the underground, send any of us a note. Uh, so thanks uh, for joining us, Dan, uh, and thank you, Pickles, most importantly. Mm. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Aaron. Great to have you all. Our Good next up. episode will be recorded November 8th, 2021, where we expect to be joined by Jason Fordney, the editor of News Data's California Energy Markets publication. To make sure you don't miss it or any other episodes, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of neither Klatskin IPUD nor News Data nor the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch!